Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Austin, what's going on with you, man? Why does it? Okay. All right, we got to switch it up. What's going on with you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you I always go longer just, than, than needed. I've been on a losing spree on some offers that I've been making. Yesterday was my third wholesale deal, which you obviously know about. Um, but, uh, you know, three is fine. So I'll have another seven to go before I get concerned. I look at it as Every 10 offers I make, if I don't get one accepted, I'm doing something wrong. So it's good, man. It's, it's been a, it's a good market. I think things are starting to pick up a little bit. It's kind of what I'm hearing from various realtors in different cities, but it does seem very like micro level, like variations, right? Like some pocket, like the shitty things don't sell and the beautiful things that are fully renovated sell like crazy. Right. So good opportunity to be a bear investor. So are you, are you saying things are picking up or slowing down? I'm saying things are picking up on the nicely renovated stuff, right? And, and no one wants to take on the full gut renos. So I think maybe what I would take from that is that investors are getting a little bit nervous, which makes sense to me. Uh, if you're a Burr investor and if the highly renovated items are selling at a good premium, they're still selling top, like they're selling fast. That's a perfect comp for us as Burr investors, right? So I think things are still selling. It varies on a per neighborhood basis. It varies on a per market basis. Like don't, take my analysis of like Scarborough and like a couple of different markets to like freaking Thunder Bay. But um, yeah, I, I would say this still selling. Is that what you're seeing or how are you seeing um, I'm I'm seeing a lot kind of different such that, or I guess like there's a slowdown in terms of number of viewings and offers on the table. And I've heard like, this is not what I'm seeing. This is kind of just like of the other podcast I've, I've listened to, right? Keep in mind, guys, I haven't dug into the data myself. I just kind of follow different real estate podcasts, and different realtors. Um, yeah, overall, less offers on the table. And as a result of that, there's more pricing on prices that the seller is looking for instead of trying to get two to 300K above asking. That strategy doesn't always pan out now. Um, but you're right. Really nice products are still going to have demand. There's still going to be multiple offers, but I've also heard that in April or even like the next coming weeks, there's going to be an influx of supply coming, but that always happens in the spring market. Yeah. But the question here is that, is the demand going to, is the demand going to match, right? Because buyer sentiments overall has seemed to be kind of changing, right? Um, on the wholesaling side, particularly, depending on what deal it is, depending on what market, definitely noticing a slowdown of buyers. Um, but we're still fortunately able to move deals, but it just depends ultimately on what market and at what price point. Your luxury flips are getting a bit less demand now mm. because there's less risk tolerance to take on those bigger projects, right? Because we don't know where prices are going to be six or seven or eight months down the line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the small flips, the super easy cosmetic flips, those will always kind of fly off the, whatever you call it. Right. I, I was trying to offer on one in Kingston. Um, it was one of Luke's deals uh, and it was make an offer to, to come see the, the property. Right. So then it would be the, the top four offers come to see the property. And then from there, there's bidding. Right. I was just like, nah, like, <laughs> no, I'm not trying to do this, but um, 
it does sound like overall, like, and this is probably validated by what you're saying as well. Like investor sentiment, I think is getting a little bit cautious, a little bit like um, bearish on the overall real estate market while end users and the products that they buy are still high in demand. Right. Um, but who knows, man, honestly, like you just got to keep doing your shit. This happened to us last year (laughs) and the year before that, where it was a slowdown drastic and then boom. (laughs) Yeah. Or it could go the other way, man. Right. Like there was, I think Mark Laughlin just put out a video, uh, talking about some economists are predicting like a major reduction in like Canadian real estate prices. And those articles exist every single fucking year as well. Right. So who the fuck really knows. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, besides that, is uh, the Prince Edward County flip wrapping up? Are you selling it? What's going on there? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're definitely, I'd say, a month over budget from a timeline perspective. Um, but it's wrapping up. Uh, final touches now should be good to go. Probably, I was hoping for April 1st, but it seems like it might be like mid-April um, to get listed and then exit that one. So we'll see. We're looking for another, another flip project on that side. Our resort is closing April 4th. Um, Very soon. As, as long as the lawyers don't delay this a little bit, right? Like financing and, and we're good to go and the seller's good to go with the lawyers and there's multiple parts to the transaction. So um, we'll see. I'm also really curious to see what our legal bill on that thing is going to be. It's going to be freaking huge. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 95% levered on that, right? Let's just not put that stuff out there, but yeah, we're, we're, we're levered high. <laughs> okay. But, but um, people also fail to realize that like legals and stuff can't be leveraged. So th- yeah, that's yeah. like going to be money coming out of your pocket. So that's still, and that's like probably going to be a significant amount, not, not like a thousand or 2000, like oh, hundred percent. No, 10,000 no. plus. <laughs> yeah. You know, to, to put it in perspective, when we were talking about potentially doing a shareholder, um, a, a share purchase agreement, we were talking about like 30 to 40 grand. Right. Um, we, we decided not to do that, but we're still talking probably in the, in the game part, in the ballpark of like 15 grand. Um, but I mean, we'll see, man. Well, we'll see where it yeah. all ends up. It's going to be super nerve wracking up until it closes. And then we'll, we'll go from there. What's going on yeah. with you? How's the business? You stepping aside from it? Yeah. On my end right now, we're refinancing an eight, uh, the eight units, the refinance, the appraisal is going to be on April 4th. So we'll see how that comes along. Uh, as I'm just saying this, I just remembered, I, I probably got to put the package together. So April 4th, we're refinancing the eight units. I'm not, actively looking to buy as much as it was before. I am still in the market if a good deal comes up, but it's just, I'm not, I don't know. I've lost that hunger of consistently acquiring a ton of properties. Um, I much prefer to wholesale or flip if need be um, just because, you know, cash in, cash out. And yeah. it feels like sometimes 200, $300 cash flow isn't super meaningful. Um, but at the same time, I, I understand long-term buy and hold real estate is exactly what got me to the position I am today. Like in terms of, from a wealth perspective, I am looking, but not as aggressively as before, but fortunately being in the off market space, we have deals run across our table. So we had a couple in Thunder Bay might pick up one or two of them. We'll see purchase price is super cheap. Rental income is pretty high. Population size is it actually went up. Um, I think it was like 105, 106,000 in 2016. It went up by like 1.1 per something, like not huge, but I'd like to see an increase versus a decline or stagnation. Are they like smaller single family duplex triplex or are these like larger like commercial? Yeah, it's it's like duplexes. Um, there's a potential sixplex in the works as well. So stuff like that. We're asking for vacant possession on a lot of them. 
I have feeling not a lot of them are going to be vacant upon possession, but that's mm. fine. I'm just leaves me room to renegotiate the price lower. Like I have that in my mind such that if it's not vacant, then like what discount do I need to make it work? So I think that's really about it. Um, just the wholesaling business is uh, tracking along. Peter's doing great. Um, the acquisitions managers are all doing fantastic. Oh yeah. And, and the bird dog program, I forgot to mention about that. We're basically hiring a couple of bird dogs for 2022. The bird dog program is essentially teaching any, any like newer or even experienced investors and in how to get off market leads, not by paying, but by hustling and working hard. So things like Facebook ads, Kijiji ads, door knocking and things that take a lot of time, but not necessarily a lot of money. Uh, if you guys are listening to this and you want to apply, really, you probably only have until Saturday to apply because we're probably going to be moving forward with applications by the first week of April. But we've had quite a bit of success with some of our other bird dogs that we hired throughout the year. Um, so very happy with that and looking forward to have some new people on the team. Anyways, like one thing that we said we we're going to do is start reading reviews out loud because I've, I've been vocally begging for reviews <laughs> and I think we're at 108 right now. And hopefully to motivate you guys, we'll we'll read like one or two reviews that we have on here on Apple Podcasts for the Raj Real Estate Investing Podcast. So we have Michael Watch. What up, Michael? Gave us five stars. Thank you. That's what we like to see. Anything less than five stars, not good enough. (laughs) (laughs) These guys share so many nuggets in their episodes that they should be charging for this info. A wealth of knowledge on a podcast where Austin and Mai are able to break down complicated strategies into language that a brand new investor can understand. Keep up the great work. Really appreciate that, Michael. Um, that's what this podcast is all about. And speaking of breaking down complicated strategies into simpler ones, we're going to jump into today's podcast episode with Jazz Takar. And we're going to be talking all about pre-construction condos in the GTA and how investors can go in and choose the right pre-construction condo, choose the right realtor to work with, what to look out and what due diligence to need. This is going to be an amazing episode. I learned a lot. Mayu learned a lot. Um, it's a bit longer of an episode than usual because we just had a ton of questions, but jam-packed full of information. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and we're going to jump right in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, and it was a long time in the making. We had to reschedule a couple of times, but finally, it's happening. Jazz Takar. Jazz, how's everything going, man? I'm amazing, Austin. Mayu, thank you so much. I apologize because those reschedules, a couple of them are on my end now. One of them was under yours. So you guys, I'm going to throw you guys under the bus as well, but uh, I'm very, very glad. I mean, it's so exciting to see what you two are up with um, not only this podcast, but man, I've seen you grow a community, an investment community um, in the last year and a half, probably two and a half years now to be exact. And it's just so cool to see it. I mean, I'm wearing a shirt here that says FTGU, which stands for up. It's kind of a media company that I started. And it was nice to see you guys build everything up from the ground up. So congratulations, man, because it's tough as a fellow content creator, I know how hard it is to continuously put yourself out there and sometimes take some haterade and, and some criticism, um, but then to find guests, reschedule, put the recordings out, all that stuff that comes out with creating content, you guys do it. So big kudos to you guys. I don't think either one of us do it to the extent that you do it at Jazz, but you, you're, you're crazy. You've got a full team going there and I know we're going to hopefully get Laura on here at a later time as well to talk about that stuff. But Jazz, for anyone that doesn't know you, and Jazz is all over social media, um, he's got a podcast, he's got multiple different platforms out there. But for anyone that doesn't know you, Jazz, 
Uh, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick rundown about yourself? Yeah, man. Um, look, I'm born in uh, uh, the northern part of Toronto in an area called Rexdale. Um, not really an area that's known for a lot of people that, that you can look up to at the corners, um, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, I was very sheltered. I was sheltered by the home that I lived in, two older brothers, my mom, dad, mother being uh, a factory worker her whole life and my father being a taxi driver and, and not really having a lot of education, grade four and grade eight education kind of thing. But they just worked their ass off, right? And so I saw that as a young kid. I saw them pinch pennies. And I think that's still with me in some aspects where I'm very, very conservative, especially from a real estate perspective. Like when I'm working numbers for myself and my clients, I I tend to be more conservative than anything else. I mean, some people might say that I'm quite aggressive, but I don't think I am in that sense. Um, But always been a sales guy, man. You know, loved putting up my hands when it comes to helping the teacher with the bake sale. And I celebrate Christmas that much, but like selling Christmas ornaments door to door. I was that kid like that just wanted to do all that. Right. And 12, 16, 20 was really those three kind of pivotal ages in my life because I went from newspapers to shoe sales to car sales. 23 got my real estate license. And now 17 years later, um, to give everybody kind of the Reader's Digest version of me, um, 17 years later, I have a team of 54 agents in the greater Toronto area. We help a little over, I'm blessed. Um, We help a little over 700 families a year. Out of 700, I'm going to say 300 to 350 are for investors. So I love the conversation that we're going to be getting into. And then at the same time, about three years ago, I started creating content. I was like, look, man, I I think the ticket to getting more awareness for anything you do, investing, sales, business, entrepreneurship, want to run for mayor is, um, you know, putting out content, video, Mm -hmm. audio, written word, whatever it is, you got to get people to hear you, see you um, and, and content creation on all the social media platforms became an obsession of mine. And so now I'm proud to say I probably, and thanks for the shout out, my, I mean, I probably do about 15 to 20 pieces of content a day on all the platforms, um, because I love doing it. I think your viewers and listeners are going to get a sense of me that I like the sound of my own voice sometimes. That's a lot of content. <laughs> Holy shit. 15 to 20 across multiple different platforms, but still, um, so I, you know, I, I don't want to get too into the marketing side of it. And we'll, we'll save that for a later episode for sure. But I think, you know, from a realtor perspective, a 17 year journey, sure. But I, I'd be curious to hear what that journey looked like if we were to break it down into five-year increments, how your business has changed, how you've evolved. Um, and just, you know, for any new realtor yeah. listening to this. Yeah. So first five years was all first time home buyers, man. Um, I, I was very comfortable, um, with working with first time home buyers, you know, back, uh, when I got licensed, I guess it would have been 2004, 2005 or whatever it is. Um, the average price point at that time was 150 grand for a downtown Toronto condo. Right. But even then it was a stretch for a lot of people. Right. Um, so first five years, all first time home buyers, second set of five years was probably now those home buyers becoming sellers. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of real estate agents ask, like, how do you get sellers? And yes, there's something to, you know, there's a saying in our industry, list to last, meaning whoever has listings is going to last. But to get that when you're starting out, it really, for me, came from my buyers. And then the biggest shift happened. Um, probably it was, it was probably year nine in year eight to now is when we started to go heavily with investors. And one reason was because we wanted to invest in real estate ourselves more often. I say we, myself and my business partner. And 
Secondly, when you sit down with an investor, they tell you everything. They tell you exactly what's in their bank account. They tell you exactly what their goals and and their ambitions are. Um, They tell you how much they're investing in stocks and other real estate. But then you actually get their peripheral business as well because you sit down with an Austin and Austin wants to invest in real estate. And then he says, oh, dude, my cousin, she's looking into buying her first condo. Do you help with that stuff? We sit down with you know, partners in like life partners. And they say, look, our daughter, our son is looking for a condo. So we started to get that peripheral business. Um, and for the last eight, nine, 10 years, it's really been working with investors. That's kind of where majority of my business, personal business comes from. Um, and, and then that other, I'm going to say out of 700, I probably do about 200 deals. And then the 500 deals come from my 54 agents. That's amazing, man. Okay, so since you mentioned investors a couple of times, let's let's dig into the investing side a bit more. So what type of um, projects are you guys investing in Toronto? Is it condos, single family homes? Like what type of investments are you looking at around the GTA? Yes, I mean, we look at it all, man. I mean, Toronto is definitely the place that we call home. It's where our headquarters are. I born and raised here, as I mentioned, always lived in Toronto. I'm biased. I think Toronto real estate is the best place to invest. Um, Definitely, you know, let me rephrase that. I think it's one of the safest places to invest, right? Um, Best is quite subjective, but if you look at the last hundred years, Toronto real estate has been quite consistent. In fact, every decade on average values double. Now the cost of entry is higher, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason why there's Lamborghinis and Ferraris, right? They're just made better. Toronto, you have most people who come into the country, into Canada. History has taught us, and history being our best teacher, 50% of people come into the greater Toronto area because all the jobs are here. I think some of the best schools are here. I think some of the best hospitals are here. So I don't see that stopping anytime. If, you know, immigration stops, that might be something that, that we have to take a look at. But with, if it's the red government, the blue government, or the purple government, or the orange, or whatever other color comes out, I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that Canada is going to stay quite open to the rest of the world. And, and that just bodes well for investors like us, our customers, our tenants. There's a big pool of them. So that's a good thing. When you look at Toronto specifically, though, because of the Greenbelt legislation that came into effect in 2005 that restricts development in certain areas of the northern part of, of southern Ontario, Then on the south side of the GTA, you have the lake. We haven't figured out what Dubai has, which is build on water yet. You can't build out subdivisions and homes. So what can you do? You can only build upwards. And so then that's why the inventory of condos and the amount of cranes you see in the sky, it's actually number two in the world, only number two to uh, Singapore, I believe right now with the amount of cranes in the sky. And that's why we spend a lot of our time with condo projects. And they're very easy and passive ways for an investor to get involved with. So that that actually makes a lot of sense. So what you're kind of talking about is Toronto is kind of in an island, right? There's not much space to develop. So land is super valuable. Can't grow outwards, so you can only grow upwards. So, So that totally makes a lot of sense. I just want to get your thoughts on as we know, affordability is a huge issue in Toronto. For someone like myself or Mayu, if we never had our previous investments into real estate, I wouldn't even know how to get started today. Okay, let's use myself as an example. 27 year, years old, 
let's say most 27 year olds with the professional white collar career probably cracking around the six figure range. How is there, I guess, I wouldn't say any hope, but how can I invest in Toronto given the prices are, are so high? A couple of ways, right? So let's, let's just go off the, the last part of the conversation. So if you look at a pre-construction condo as an investor now, um, and, so, and so when I tell you some of the square footage, people are going to say, well, I can't live there. As an investor, you're not living there. Let's talk about the tenants, right? So on average, let's just look at a 500 square foot condo, which is not small anymore. I mean, the average that they're building is sometimes 380 to 400 square feet, right? But let's take a 500 square foot condo. There's still certain areas in Toronto that you can get that condo for 550, call it $600,000. Still at $1,000 price per square foot, you can still find something at 500,000, but let's just take it to 600,000. The down payment for that, Austin, is paid in installments. Because you're buying something that's going to be built out, generally speaking, three and a half years to four years down the road, what the builder says is, well, you don't have to give us the 20% that you would on any other property in Ontario as an investor right now. You can pay that in installments. So as someone who's younger, I actually think it's one of the best investments because it's a forced savings plan. Now, this would not happen to the Mayus and, and the Austins of the world because you don't spend your money on dumb shit. But as a 26, 27-year-old, sometimes the Jordans and the cars, they look a little bit more sexier than a piece of real estate does. I say it doesn't happen to you guys because you proved it did it. You, you did put in any of your extra cash into real estate. But as a 27-year-old, you're going to be forced to actually put those installments down. And so that 120,000 gets break, uh, broken up into $30,000 installments. Now, look, I think if you get a little bit of help from mom and dad, possibly, you can also save for that. And some people say, I can't save 30 Gs. You know what? I've sat down with enough people and saw the, the silliness people spend money on. You could save that money if the why is strong enough. And, and, and I don't know how much we want to get into the philosophical mindset of what you need to be to become a successful investor. But I can tell you, if your why is not strong enough, it doesn't matter what the heck I tell you or Mayu or Austin tell you, you're not going to do it anyways. You know? And so that's one way. The second way is I think you house hack. You have to live a little grimier, right? Like what you see on Instagram is not necessarily what's going to be your lifestyle at the age of 25. Maybe it's going to be that at 32 or 35. And what I mean by that is, look, Find a property that you can live in the basement, right? Live in the basement, rent out the upstairs. Maybe you can actually, as a third option, do it as a joint venture with friends and where you can actually maybe even look at a triplex. Yes, you're going higher up in price, but if you do it with two other friends and all three of you are going to live in, in one of the two bedroom or three bedroom units, that's another way that you can get involved. That's in like Toronto proper. And what I mean by Toronto proper is like actual 416. There's still some pockets in, in, in other areas of the GTA, i.e. Oshawa, um, you know, Bowmanville's kind of the GTA now as it stretches out. You can still pick up homes where you can live in the basement, rent out the upstairs. And those are probably, you know, options one, two, and three to get into the greater Toronto area as a younger investor. I think Josh really outlined some really good points. I, I got started with my very first property as a pre-con as well. And it was essentially that my dad was like, I'm wasting all this money on like stupid stuff, like clothes. Like and it wasn't that lavish. It was just like food and like stupid stuff. Right. Um, and he just went, go buy this thing, go buy something. So at least your paychecks have to go towards some sort of a payment plan. 
And then whatever you can't pay on a monthly basis, you just put on a line of credit. And eventually, as long as you get back to it and you pay it off before the condo project closes, you're all fine, right? So I, I think that's a really good point. Just add to that, Mario, I think one other and a couple of other things that a pre-construction investment really allows for is flexibility, right? That you don't have to, and I know Austin's quite familiar with this, is, is you don't have to close on it, mm-hmm. right? Like we talked about the 130000 uh, 120000 I apologize, um, on that $600,000 payment, but you can actually flip the condo before it gets built and you wouldn't even put down 120000 You would have put closer to 90000 right? Because right. you flip it when you're only putting in 15% down. So you have those flexible options. For me though, I think one of the best things is, is that I don't have to close on it right now. So personally, why I tend to go towards a pre-construction condo investment is because I don't have to get the mortgage. There's a formality. It's worth less than toilet paper. I mean, you know, before COVID, I was definitely sure it was less than toilet paper. Now, I don't know what the value of toilet paper is these days. And so you definitely can use that as an advantage because it doesn't show up on the radar when you go to the bank to go get financing for, I don't know, a duplex or triplex or or a multiplex in Hamilton or something like that, right? So that is one of the main reasons that I've always liked investing into pre-construction because it just gives me a bunch of flexible options. I can close on it if I want to, I can assign it, and I don't actually need to get a mortgage for it right now. Interesting. Now, do you feel the same way about pre-con kind of detached or town townhouse projects or um, are you more bullish on, on condos or just comparing the three? Yeah, that's a great question. My, you know why? Because I get, I mean, I get that a lot, especially with the fact that there's not a lot of detached, mm-hmm. like townhomes, semi and detached homes coming up, even in the pre-construction realm in greater Toronto area. So when it does, it's so rare and the value, I mean, the value of that is higher if you look at a hundred years, detached homes have always appreciated more than condos, like in that hundred year span, the gap has shrunk, but it, I mean, it's still apparent that detached homes are going to bring you more value. The reason I tend to go towards condos is because see, it's going to take the three and a half to four years to get built. So the rental income that's going to be coming in, the rents get time to catch up to what my cost of borrowing is going to be. When it's a townhome, semi-detached and detached, those get built out in a year, like very rare a year and a half even because it doesn't take as long for it to build. So my rents don't get time to catch up. Where in a condo, I love when delays happen because I'm not living there. So what do I really care, right? I want more appreciation because then the real strategy, and that might be investing 102, but your guys are very, your guys and gals are savvy, but I'm going to close on it six months later. I'm going to refinance it, pull out the equity, and then own the condo with zero down. That's my real strategy that I do with these pre-cons. But if the rents don't get that time to catch up, then I'm going to be too negative in terms of my cash. I personally, and this might sound weird to people who are watching and listening, I don't care if I got to put in 150, 200 bucks out of my pocket, because I know if three of us, in fact, when my studio gets built out and you guys are on my podcast and we go to Jack Astor's, have a couple of beers and, and, and some chicken wings and nachos, and it's 200 bucks. I know how quickly people spend 200 bucks yeah. in an hour, let alone in a month. I don't mind yeah. putting $200 out of my left pocket into my right pocket in terms of negative. It's not that I want to be negative in, in my, like from a cash flow perspective, but it's not the end of the world for me because yeah, I might be paying even four grand a year out of my pocket, but I know what I'm making on the other side of the ledger, right? 
Mm. Yeah. So your net benefit is still positive because your equity pay down is far going to outweigh the little bit of negative cash flow you're incurring from the condo. Yeah. And now look, I mean, I think, you know, it depends where you are in your life, right? Um, for me, I don't need the cash flow to keep my lights on, right? I'm doing this for all long-term equity play. People who are listening right now are saying, bro, I need to do this because I need the extra two, three grand a month and I need it to come from my property. Awesome. Pre-construction condo is not for you, right? Like that's it. Like, and I actually think that's great in, in so many of the podcasts that you guys do, right? Like you try to teach people and educate people that not every strategy is for everyone. You have to look mm-hmm. at what are you looking for? So for me, my accountant doesn't even like when I have a thousand dollars coming out of a property. Like it doesn't make sense for me because like, I can't write it off. Right. And so I actually like the loss a little bit because I can use that, you know, when I'm doing my taxes. And so for me, as I mentioned, I think the fact that the equity is building, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I think there's also a, a return on time aspect to it. Right. I think like the deals that myself and Austin do, it takes up a lot of our time. It takes active management takes us driving for hours and just hiring people to do a bunch of shit, right? Versus a pre-con, like I've got family members who have only done pre-con, right? And, and very successful, like full-time daytime jobs earn like three, 400 grand. And they're like, look, like I'm just looking to park my capital, right? And, and pre-con makes the perfect amount of sense. You're getting a new quality asset, which means very little capex and repairs, right? And good tenants. I, and Mayo, I mean, bro, like if you put a hammer in my hands, brother, I have no clue what the heck to do with it. Like none, I, like... <laughs> And I'm not exaggerating. Like, I can't put up a piece of art on the wall. Like, I am going to screw something up, you know? And, and that's just, so I know myself, like, I'm not the guy to go to the house and get my hands dirty. I have no ambitions of that. I actually envy someone like yourself and, and Austin, because you guys do get your hands dirty. And everyone else who does, I have a lot of investors who do flips and stuff like that as well. And I mean, it's just not me, man, because I got to call the handyman to do a lot of stuff at my house. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't think it's me and Mayu anymore as well, but uh, <laughs> that was definitely not the fun side of real estate investing yeah. for sure. I wanted to get a better idea of the pre-construction investing strategy. Now, how do you choose the right pre-con project? Because at any time when I'm looking at my inbox, I'll see like 10 different projects. How do I know which one to invest into? So I get probably about for the last five years, seven years, year after year, I get about a hundred at my desk. So I know how many you probably get in your inbox as well. Um, but I, I, I legit get a hundred every single year. And so I got to get real good and, and fast and quick on how I'm going to do my due diligence. And so I break it up into three parts. Number one, actually four, sorry, four parts. Number one is, am I in the first round of pricing? It has to absolutely be in the first access of pricing um, or it like right away, it doesn't make it pass to the next stage because the difference from first access to second access, there's usually three to four rounds of increases of pricing. And the difference from first to fourth could be a hundred thousand dollars easily, easily. Okay. So excuse me, it has to be at the first round of pricing. Number two, it's the location. Can't pick up the building and move it. But now in Toronto, like there's a lot of AAA locations. So I still need to narrow it down. I narrow it down just so everybody knows from that 100. I only get loud, some would say obnoxious, about six to eight of them in a year. I don't promote more than six to eight projects, okay? Because I don't want my, my offerings to get watered down. 
So number two is going to be the location. And that's done by how close am I to a major transit line? I've just looked at over the last 17 years that I've been in the business, what happens in world real estate when you're under about 500 meters to transit, the values appreciate the most and the rentability of your property shoots through the roof as well. So I like to be under 500 meters under a major transit line. So that's the location. And obviously through the location, it's going to tell me like what kind of jobs are in that area, which will tell me what type of tenants I'm going to get. The number three part of my due diligence is the builder. I want to make sure that myself or my clients are not being used as guinea pigs for the developer's first kind of rodeo. And so I'm looking at the reputation, how many projects, not have these guys or gals, like how much are they actually in construction with? How many have they finished? Ones that I can walk in, touch, see, smell the finishes. How's the buildings doing? How's the amenities up cap? All of that. That's number three. Why is number three so important? And I ask this because sometimes I see new builders with like the cheapest price per square feet. I kind of have an idea why, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, there's a couple of reasons, Austin. First and foremost, what's real when it comes to when you're buying a pre-construction condo is that projects get canceled, right? It happens maybe 1% of the amount of projects that actually get completed. Like 1% of the time, a project will, 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 will get canceled. You get your money back. So those installments, you do get your money back, but you just lost on all that opportunity of an investment, right? And so most builders, when they're doing it for the first couple of times, they don't have a strong reputation that they're trying to uphold. And so if you're buying something, call it today in 2022, and it was supposed to be built in 2026, in around 2025, they'll say, oh, the cost of construction has gone up. And now we want to cancel this project. See, a builder that has a strong reputation, like the top 10, 12 builders in the country, they won't cancel that project because they don't want to leave a bad taste in people's mouths. And so that to me is a reason that's very important to look at the builder. Mm. The fourth part of my due diligence comes from the incentives and the incentives offered to an investor. And what you need to look at is because you're an investor is you want to have the right to lease during occupancy. There's two stages to a pre-construction closing. Okay. There's occupancy that's when the builder gives you the keys and says, look, it's passed all the safety permits. You can actually make use of this. But because you're making use of it, uh, purchaser, you have to pay us an occupancy fee. See, if you're going to live in the building, there's nothing wrong with that because you're making use of it. There's no mortgage involved yet, but it's like paying rent. As an investor, though, if they don't let you rent it out, you're paying an occupancy fee for something that's sitting vacant. So as long as you have it in writing that you can rent it out, you're good because you're going to rent it out at market rent and you're going to be paying an occupancy fee. You're actually going to see the best cash flow at that time by six, seven, $800 a month. Just don't get used to it because six months later comes the second closing, which is registration. And that's when you have to get the mortgage, but you have to have the right to lease during occupancy as an incentive. The next incentive is making sure that your development charges are capped. You're buying today, four years later, we don't know what the development charges are going to be. Any of the increases that the city puts on the developer, I got news for you, gets passed on to you as the purchaser. But if 
as long as you have a number capped, and in the city of Toronto right now, you're looking at one bedrooms being capped at about 10 G's and two bedrooms being capped at like 14 grand. As long as it's capped, if it comes in at 37,000, which is very common, you're only going to pay the 14,000 that it was capped at. Okay. And then the final one is the right to assign. We, we, we spoke about the importance of having that option of flipping the condo. The real reason an assignment was put into contracts for pre-construction condos about six, seven years ago was to be used as a security blanket. Life happens. Who knows? Your lifestyle wants and needs might have changed. You might run into financial hardship and you might not be able to close on this. And at like the last option, you've got to be able to sell it to someone else. Now, in the last five years, investors have used it primarily because it's been gaining so much appreciation from when they bought it to, to when it got built that they were using it to flip it. Personally, you guys know, I mean, real wealth is created in real estate by holding on for dear life. But if you need to flip it, then you can flip it. And so that's kind of my process of due diligence. First round of pricing, a must. Location, can't pick up the building and move it. Builder's reputation, we want to make sure that we're not being used as the guinea pig. And then what incentives are being offered to us as an investor? So let me ask you one question here. Because generally speaking, the more reputable a builder is, the probably the more expensive the price per square foot would be, right? So how do you then mitigate the fact that look like when you're paying a premium to what is the market value? And this is more so because like I've toyed with like pre-cons, right? Like I, I sold my young and empty condo, I think a year or something like that ago. And I've always just been like, you know what? I want to buy another one just to like have like another footprint in another condo in, in the GTA, right? You know, how do you kind of assess the risk of, you know, I'm, I'm paying more than market value for a pre-con condo. There's huge benefits to it because it stays off my balance sheet, which I like a lot, right? From an investor perspective. Um, but, you know, how do you kind of mitigate that risk? Because I don't necessarily want to go for a small developer. I don't want to pay too big of a premium, right? So it's kind of like I want the best of all worlds. But <laughs> yeah, you know what, my I, I get it. I totally understand it. You know, just like anything else, you're trying that line where you can get the best price per square foot and the best builder. And that exists, right? Like where you can find that, that axis where those two paths cross. However, with that said, if I had to make a choice, I would always pay more for a better builder because that better builder, okay, most of the time, 98% of the time is building in an area that they know is going through a massive redevelopment because their R&D department is huge. So, I mean, not that they sponsor any one of us, not that I, not that like I know if they sponsor you, but let's call it like the elephant in the room is tried out by far. They're like probably one or one A when it comes to pre-construction con. They'll have a 300 unit building and they have 3000 worksheets within 24 hours. That's not from one building example, that's over hundred of their last buildings. And the reason is, is because they've been doing it for the longest. Okay. So they know what to expect when it comes to occupancies and finishes and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're generally building, as I mentioned, in an area that's very close to transit. Okay. They paid more for the land, but because they have such big and deep pockets, they're able to acquire land even for a higher price. Right. But, and that's why they need to recoup their money, but their buildings generally have the highest resale values as well. And so for me, the return on my investment 
is going to be higher with a better builder. Now, when you're paying even $100,000 more on a purchase price, let's say, Mayu, you pay um, for $100,000 more for a better builder, better location than I do. Okay. That $100,000 that is on the purchase price, that's not what it's going to cost you. You as an investor, it's going to cost you $20,000 over four years. So it's $5,000 a year that it's going to cost you. And I just think you're going to be able to sleep well at night better knowing that you paid that 20 G's more over four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of being close to transit, does that mean that parking spots almost never make sense when buying pre-construction? Because I'm seeing like in Yorkville, what is it? Over 150 G's for a parking spot for a pre-con? Craziness. So funny, so <laughs> funny, brother. Because I, I, like, I have something in Hamilton right now that I was just literally, that's why I came like a 30 seconds late to the chair here. Um, parking spot in Hamilton right now is $70,000, okay? At the time of this recording, March, 2022, okay? 70 grand on pre-con. And my client bought something with me in Toronto five years ago, and we paid 70,000 in uh, Toronto, okay? Wasn't downtown Toronto, her condo, just right outside. Anyways, 17 years ago, when I started, Parking was $25,000 in Yorkville, okay? To your point, Austin, we just did a project in Yorkville. It wasn't for investors. It's more end-user product. People are going to live in the building and stuff. Um, it was $132,000 was a parking spot. Now, to put this into perspective, into context, back 17 years ago in Toronto was $25,000. Manhattan was $100,000. And everybody said, that's crazy. That's nuts. Jazz, you're on crack if you think these are going to go higher. Okay. Today, 2022, parking spots in Manhattan are close to half a million dollars. And we are in Toronto sitting at 125, 130,000. In fact, our price per square foot, just to take you back, like out of the parking, for example, and, and, and I remember your question on, I'm going to get to it. If you look at price per square foot in downtown Toronto, we're on average at about 1500 to 1550. Okay. Is this resale or pre-con? I apologize. It's pre-con. Okay. Okay. You're about 1500 call it on pre-construction. 17 years ago, when I started, we were at same area, downtown Toronto. You were probably at about $400 price per square foot. Okay. Today, Manhattan, London, Shanghai, Hong Kong, they're all north of $3,000. Even in our own country, Vancouver's hovering around 1900, 1800 maybe on the low end. So I know that, you know who really thinks Toronto real estate is expensive? Torontonians, which makes sense because we live here. It's hard to believe that we're a world-class city. It's just, we don't see it because we all see the, the negative parts of our city and I get it. However, when people from the outside come here, they're like, dude, your real estate's on sale still. Like we see where the, the trajectory is going. When it comes to parking, I mean, I have a media team that, that we were talking about off air for, for a little bit there. And, and majority of them, I think all of them actually are 30 years and younger. There's seven of them, one to seven of them. Not one of them have a car. Half of them don't even have a driver's license. At 16, I think I slept at the DMV the night before, mm -hmm. like dying to get my driver's license. You know what I mean? It's not even a thing anymore. It's just no one really is like, oh my God, I can't wait to get a car. Forget today's gas price at two bucks here in Toronto, right? But I mean, even before, like to have a car, payment, insurance, maintenance, 
parking, all that kind of stuff. You're about close to a thousand bucks a month, right? So I get the, let me just use the Presto card and or ride my bike or walk or whatever it is. So if you're that close to transit, I don't think there's a need for parking as much as they're used to, or there is if you're living or if you're investing outside of Toronto, i.e. Brampton, Bowmanville, Hamilton, even though that there's some really great transit there, but still, I think you need it. Um, where in Toronto now, you know, when you're paying $135,000 or $100,000, just for argument's sake, that cost of borrowing, like at today's interest rate, cost of borrowing is going to be about $400. Bucks. Um, you're not going to get the rent for it. You know, you're not going to get 400 bucks a month. You will get 200. Um, so for me, I would rather you just not go for the parking. On the flip side, if the 100,000, which is $20,000, remember 20% on that 100,000 is not going to break the bank, I think there's value still in buying it. If it's not going to break the bank, if you're somebody who that like the 100,000 for parking is going to be the deterrent of you investing, then don't buy the parking. I'd rather you just get the unit because at least you're going to build equity by buying the unit. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you one more kind of hypothetical. We're always kind of constantly looking for ways to hack the system here, right? So could you, in theory, just kind of follow around Tridal's construction projects and buy a neighboring building as is priced today, hopefully a little bit of a discount and ride the wave, like kind of the opposite point of, you know, everything kind of sinks to the lowest, whatever tide or whatever that phrase is, right? Would everything kind of climb to whatever Tridal's pricing is at? Yeah, I get what you're saying, Mayun. So the only thing I wanted you to unwrap for me was, did you mean um, like purchase a resale condo beside? Tridal, yeah. Um, like, like 100%. Did- yeah, the answer is yes to you. In fact, if someone's listening right now, I think there's a lot of value, a lot of value in even forget even following around Tridel, but yes to that question, but looking at a resale condo. The only difference is that you have the 20% now. That is the part where like I probably speak to without like over exaggerating, I probably speak to 2000 investors on phone calls or Zooms like this, like one-on-ones and stuff a year. And I can tell you, majority of people just don't have the 20% on hand right now, ready to go. And they're not thinking about investing 102, investing 103, which is the joint venturing and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I look at resale condos on a regular basis. I actually even, you know, I have investors and I haven't really done this myself, but I have investors who look at just being the assignee, meaning that they're picking up assignments because Austin's going to buy something three years ago. And now it's a year before closing. He wants to flip it and he's going to leave some meat on the bone. He has to, as the assignor, he has to leave a little meat on the bone. So I have investors who are like, great. Austin did all the waiting. He had to do all that stuff. I just got to wait a year now. Plus he's going to leave me maybe 7%, six, 8% off of market value. I'm good. I'll, I'll pick that up right now. Right. But to your point, yeah, man, there's some value in, in, in definitely looking at resale condos in and around Tridel. Now, I also want to make sure that not 100% of Tridel's locations are like triple, triple A, but 90% of them are though. Like if you look at Tridel right across the city of Toronto, like I'm going to say 90% of them were all built in triple A locations. Mm. Sorry, Austin. I don't know if you have another question. I'm going to ask one more question here. Uh, so I guess let's talk about the Toronto versus the suburbs kind of I mean, That's so exactly price. what I was going to ask. You okay. So we're, we're on the same page. You guys must be, <laughs> hey, you guys must be co-hosts on a podcast. <laughs> I guess so. so. From like a price perspective, but also like demand, like tenants, like overall, right? Like 
I mean, personally, I, I, I grew up like near Scarborough, Austin grew up in Scarborough. So like I watched Scarborough market. I see the prices for some of these pre-cons. What's like the price discrepancy? Do you, do you find some cities have a higher value prop? Um, let's say Markham, Oshawa, whatever from a condo market, or is it ultimately, you know, the building costs for these condos are basically the same, regardless of where you're building it. The land value is what's changing. And so therefore land spread over thousands of, or hundreds of units or whatever, right? Um, do you think there's justification going to the suburbs or do you think Toronto's now, I want to chime into that before we get Jazz's answer in specific, like just to give you a particular example, I just kind of always follow like pre-construction emails just out of curiosity to see where things are heading. And I've noticed that in Milton, we're seeing pre-cons at what, like 1100 a square feet, like 1100 a square feet. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Cause a year and a half ago, you could have gotten that in Toronto. Chime some uh, light into that. Yeah, <laughs> look, I think, I think, I think, um, sometimes there's really no method to the madness that's going on. It's, it really comes down to a supply and demand issue where, you know, if you look at, and you guys, I'm sure have gone through it, but a lot of your, your community, a hundred percent have gone through it where they've now just gotten emotionally beat up in the resale market with putting in offers. And as investors, look, I mean, you could be you know, one of the most savvy investors. You probably are not going to beat out when it comes to real estate and end user because your numbers driven and end user is emotion driven. They see their, their dog and their kids running in the backyard 15 years down the road. How are you going to compete with you know, running the numbers on the drywall? Just it's not going to happen. And so, but emotionally, you're going to get beat up after losing six, seven offers, but you have money. It's in your bank account. You're savvy enough to understand inflation it being the silent killer. You're like, I got to put this money somewhere. Where am I going to go? Okay. There's these pre-construction things I hear about. They see a good looking guy. I'm not talking about my, you, I'm talking about <laughs> myself. And they, they hear me on a podcast talking about investing into a pre-con. And it's like, okay, look, honey, we have some offerings here. And so then you start to see that demand now spill over into the pre-construction world. I mention all that because sometimes the math doesn't make sense because, for example, you brought up Milton Austin. I'm going to give you one that's a little different and is as recent as a month ago in Georgetown, which just northwest of Brampton. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's actually northwest of the most western part of Brampton. Okay. Georgetown. And we're seeing pre construction condos being sold for $1,200 price per square foot. Makes no sense. Sold out 12 hours, 24 hours, 300 unit building. We're in Oakville, talking about Oakville now, like for your out of province viewers and listeners, Oakville is one of the nicest areas in the greater Toronto area. They're selling for $1,200 price per square foot, right? Mm. So for me, comparing an apple to an apple, all day long, I'm going to Oakville. Okay, all day long, I'm going to Oakville. To your point, Mayu, I mean, yes, the cost of the lumber and, and the steel and all that kind of stuff is identical. Okay. It's the land value that is the complete difference. And that's why you see Toronto condos selling for more. But as me as an investor, first and foremost, even more than like before being a real estate broker, I'm always going to look to a Toronto proper condo. Even more than like, I love what's happening in Scarborough right now because you can get in then less than you can in downtown Toronto. But I mean, if, you know, if I take you back to content in August, September of 2020, like when we were like in the height of the lockdown, just after like we kind of realized, okay, COVID vegetables and stuff like that, like we weren't washing all of our stuff. Like, you know, we were still in a massive lockdown where I was saying 
downtown Toronto condos were on sale, like because people were leaving, but they were going to come back. We saw it happen now. Like they're all come back. We're kind of getting back into normal now with things opening up where I think if you always had to make a choice and you can afford the difference, if you can afford the difference, invest in into Toronto proper because the values are always going to go up and you're always going to have a consistent flow of tenants. I love the burbs. I live in the burbs myself now. And, you know, there's a lot of condos coming because it's the only thing that we can build. Going back to the first part of our conversation on the podcast, can't build outwards. You can only build upwards. But downtown Toronto condos have always appreciated more than anywhere else in the city. In fact, the only other place in the country that's even come close is Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So I think you brought up an important point that Oakville and Georgetown, same price, but to get into an Oakville project, you obviously need to work with the right realtors. Not like you can just walk in and say, I'm going to buy it. So let's get into that aspect of things. We mentioned at the beginning, but the importance of a platinum realtor. Now I know you and your team have platinum access to a lot of projects. Um, I, from time to time, see a realtor like, I don't know. I went to high school as one to become a realtor. It's like I have platinum access. Now that word is thrown around too commonly now, right? And I'm sure you hear it, Jessica. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not really a platinum realtor. How do you determine if someone's actually a platinum realtor or not? Because everyone just uses it so freely now. Yeah, look, I mean, just like anything else, right? I mean, um, you got to ask how much experience they have. Um, unfortunately, there really is no way of really telling Austin. Um, you're right, brother. Like. You know, anyone can call themselves a platinum agent. And as, as someone, as a, as a purchaser, um, you, you'll probably get duped by somebody that says that they're platinum agent. And then you put in a, what's called a worksheet or reservation form. That's essentially used kind of reserving a unit. It doesn't mean that you're going to move forward a hundred percent. Cause in Ontario, you get what's known as the 10 day due diligence period where are the 10 day cooling off period is another word where you can make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. But um, really the only way is you handing in a reservation form and you not getting a unit because with the platinum agents, you're going to get a unit. I think it's safe to say out of the 76,000 real estate agents, and I didn't make that number up. That's the number 76,000 real estate agents in the greater Toronto area. There is approximately 150 true, true platinum agents. In fact, I probably think it's closer to 100. Like, I just know them all. We're in one chat group. There's one chat group in WhatsApp that all those 100 are in. We just know each other. I'm probably the one that they know least of only because, and and it's funny because I probably do the most content out of everyone, but I just, I'm always here at the office. I don't go to any of the events. My business partner handles all that kind of stuff. I like to kind of stay here and just do these kind of things. But there's about a hundred platinum agents in the city. And as the public, um, look, I think the only way you're going to find out is giving in a reservation form slash worksheet. You're not getting a unit. And that's how you're going to come to realize if they're a platinum agent or not. And for those who are working for a platinum agent, now you know one. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate that, brother. So, so does it work in a way where like an office gets a con? Because I've noticed the same thing. Like there was one in, in Pickering, I think it was like New Point Condos or something like that, right? Yeah. And like every realtor, I don't know why, maybe it's just who I follow on like on Instagram. Every realtor was pushing it. So I was just, and everyone would talk about like how they get their like worksheets, like whatever, like accepted and all that kind of stuff. So I was a little bit confused about it. So how does this work? Does like an office or a brokerage get it? 
and then everyone kind of under them can kind of submit through the office or, or how's this entire pre-con game work? Yeah. So the whole game works like this. You have developer, okay. Developer X, they hire on what's known as a listing broker. Okay. No different than if my, you want to sell your house, you call a real estate agent and the, that agent who puts a for sale sign on your lawn, that's known as the listing broker mm-hmm. in the pre-con world. The developer goes to a listing broker slash marketing firm. Okay. That listing broker really acts as the marketing firm because a listing broker, like when they list your home for sale, they can go direct to consumer. They can sell to another consumer, right? Here in the pre-con game, that listing broker could go to the consumer, but because there's 300 units, their real game is going to the other agents. So they bring on the help of other real estate agents or the legal term is cooperating agents. Then that morphed into using the word platinum agents. So that's where that word came from, that I'm platinum with that listing broker slash marketing firm. There is seven, seven major listing brokers for pre-construction condos. They don't sell to the public until the end of that fourth round of pricing. So a little tidbit for everyone. If you walk into a sales office and they let you buy a unit, realize as the public that you just paid the fourth round of pricing. Mm. Doors open and says, come on in, units for sale. That means they've already raised it three, four times, okay? That's why they're opening the doors to the public. That's why you want to get with an agent. And so that listing broker is not going to go to the agents. There's 300 units. They're going to give in the first allocation, they're going to release approximately 50 to 70 units. So some of the platinum agents are not going to get any Depending on how close your relationship is with that listing broker, you might get lucky and get 12, Mm. 14. There's also a reason why I only do six to eight, as I mentioned earlier. I'm only going to bring six to eight projects to the marketplace where I know I'm going to get 15 to 20 units in any of those six to eight projects because I know I've been cultivating a list for over 17 years that's now 11,152 names. I get my number every single morning. 11,152 names, which are all investors that I've been cultivating for 17 years. Those listing brokers out of the seven, like truly I have hard, strong relationships with about five of them. There's two that they kind of know us. We do a little bit of business. Five of them were like, we've known each other for over a decade. I don't get always a unit in all their projects, but the hottest ones I definitely do um, because we have such a long-standing relationship. So that's kind of how the process is. My, there's 300 units in a building. Listing broker is going to give, you know, in total, he or she is going to give about 200 units to those 100 platinum agents on average. I find this such an engaging conversation. So pardon me if this is taking a bit more time than you're anticipating, Jazz. I love it, brother. Um, I love it. But, but I, I do have a question. So if... A developer, let's say, puts out 50 units for their first round, true first round, and there's 3,000 worksheets. They don't have a price in mind for the second one. They're just going to do it based on demand, right? So they could raise it by 150K if they wanted to. Is that right or 100% they could. Now, with a condo, you wouldn't go like with houses. Back to Mayu's point earlier, like the question that he had. um, With houses, I've seen 150,000 increase. Like... Forget in, in two days or something, Austin. I've seen that happen in two hours. Like the builder at the 
sales office has said, excuse me, I'm going for lunch, comes back 150 G's for that model now. So we've seen that with homes because it's just like supply. There's very, very little supply when you're doing homes. With condos, Austin, that first round to the second round, on average, like don't quote me on this, but on average, I'm going to say it's about 18 to 22, $23,000 from first to second round. And then the second mm. to third round, you see another 20 G's or so, 25 G's. Here's like to kind of put this in a bow for everyone. I've done 2,000 units, not to impress anyone here, to more to impress upon you where the data is coming from. And if you watch my content and stuff, I'm not a flexor. It's not how I talk. It's not who I am. But from the day that you buy a condo to when the building gets built four years, 2,000 units that I've done in the last 10 years strong, okay? On average, I see about $150,000 to $175,000 increase. Mm. That's kind of the numbers that you can anticipate. You buy a condo today, it's going to be built in four years from now. You're going to see an increase of anywhere from $150,000 to $175,000. Let's go conservative. Ask yourself if it was only $100,000. Was it worth it? The way that I would answer that question is keep in mind your actual return on the money that you gave. Meaning in year one, you would have given 10% on that $600,000 condo. That's 60,000. Okay. In year two and year three, you would have given another 60,000 in total. That's $120,000. If you made $100,000, you almost made a hundred percent return on your money for probably the most boring investment you'll ever do in your life. It's worse than watching paint dry. It's very, very boring. Mm. And, and what you've done is essentially wrote some checks and you take the risk if the building actually gets built or not. And that generally is determined on which builder you use. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So the reason why I asked that in specific is, so I have a unit I bought a while ago. I think Jazz, you know, the Forest Hill condos um, by Senecourt. And they added three new towers to that building. They got like a proof of three new towers and they released it to the public. They released like 10 of them and it sold out like in a minute. And then they released another 10, like five minutes after. And it went up a hundred dollars per square feet or like another 12 or 15 or whatever. I was just following along out of curiosity. Then that sold out like in five minutes and they released another, like literally consecutively. And from the first release 20 minutes ago to the third release, like 20 minutes later, they went up like $200 a square feet. I was like, this wow. is crazy. Wow. <laughs> sense, wow. But, wow. Yeah. yeah like, I've never like, seen that in my life. Yeah, no, I've never seen that much. I mean, center court, just so you know, is like in the top 10, like they're top, top builders. Um, they're known for some really unique things. And number one is that they're the only builder that I know of that I've ever come across that I've, and I have a lot of experience with center court. Remember when I told you there's two closings, occupancy and registration? They're the only builder that goes straight into registration, which is awesome because they have something figured out. I don't know what yet, um, but they're the only builder in the city that is able to do that. Now, to your point, I mean, I think that's a possibly like a very unique situation because the demand was so high, right? I mean, overall, like I like to tell people, like even in the GTA, the last two years, we've saw an increase, you know, maybe going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but like, I saw an increase of, and we've seen an, an experience, an increase of 20.6%, 21%. I just really hope people don't like only invest because they think that it's always 20%. Like don't get caught on that crack because it's going to be troublesome, right? Like really be conservative, work your numbers, 
In the GTA, for the last 40 years, work off of 8%. That's been the average increase year over year. It's why I'm so adamant about investing into the greater Toronto area. I know you can get involved into properties in, in secondary and tertiary markets, and I think you should look at those. But there's still a lot of value in investing in the greater Toronto area because you know, we know who won the race out of the tortoise and the hare, right? Like it's that slow and steady increase that you can pretty much count on when it comes to Toronto. Okay. I think, I think this is a great episode, Jazz. I think you covered a lot of, a lot of kind of cool concepts for sure. And open our eyes on the pre-con side. One last question, because it's something that me and Austin have chatted about both, just both of us have bought pre-cons and um, what is the closing cost? Like what does someone budget for closing costs for a condo? Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. Um, Austin asked me and I'm like, I don't know. I think it was like 20,000, <laughs> like, like a, a normal single family house that we buy in like Sudbury or something like that. Like it's pretty cookie cutter, $1,500 legals, land transfer tax, add a couple hundred for miscellaneous. Every pre-con is like, to me, completely different. Yeah. So what do you recommend yeah. people budget for that? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I would budget easily 20,000, which includes your legal fees, your land transfer tax, along with your development charges. I, you know what, to be on the safe side, let's go to 25,000, okay? Um, land transfer tax, legal fees, development charges. And there's one extra added thing that you need to be aware of, which is called HST. Mm. Um, and HST for pre-construction condos is, works in a weird formula, but I'm going to give it to you like in, in, in the most layman terms that I can. You, when you buy a pre-construction condo as an investor, you need to pay $24,000 at closing. As long as you rent that condo out, as long as you show the CRA that you're going to be renting it out, via lease agreement for one year. At closing, you fill out a form and within six to eight weeks, you get a rebate back of $23,300. That $700 gets eaten up in admin fees with the CRA. Figure that one out. But you have to be prepared for that closing because you got to pay for it, but then you do get all majority of it back. So to answer your question, Mayu, I would budget about 25,000. And that's all in for your pre-construction closing costs. There you go. We got some clarity to, to settle that debate. All right, guys. <laughs> so, so generally at this point in the podcast, I know we went a little bit over time. You're a busy guy. I'm sure you got to run. But at this point in the podcast, we, we just ask our guests two questions. The first question is, uh, where do you see yourself five years from now from a business perspective? Um, look, I got 54 real estate agents um, in my real estate company. I think in five years, we'll be at 100. I have um, uh, uh, eight staff on my media squad. I think we're going to be at about 25 staff there. I have 20 clients that use our media, 20 real estate agents that use our media services um, on a monthly basis to help them produce content. I think in five years, um, easily I'll be at a little over 150 clients that I service there. Wow. Okay. And for a new investor getting started in today's market, where do you see the biggest risk? I think the biggest risk um, is just not taking action. Um, you know, in my studio, in my old studio, I had a massive sign behind my head that read ready, fire, aim. And that was a reminder for everybody who saw it and myself as well, because I'm not like anyone, like I'm not superhuman by any means, um, that, that you don't want to fall into paralysis by analysis. In Toronto, as I mentioned, um, and you can look at anywhere in the world, but in Toronto, 17 years ago, parking spots were going for 25,000. They're now going for 125,000. I tell you that because you can, could have bought anything and made money. Real estate, as long as you actually get involved and hold on to the property, you're going to win. You lose in real estate when you panic and you sell. 
And so the biggest risk for me is just not getting involved. Ready, fire, aim means pull the trigger in real estate as much as possible, meaning tie a property, then aim slash do your due diligence, not the other way around. Because while you're doing your due diligence, you're going to have savvy investors like myself, Mayu, and Austin are going to pick up the deal and run the numbers, like actually tie up the property and then figure it out later. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Especially in this marketplace right now, you got to tie the deal up as soon as you see it. Otherwise, like you just pretty much have no shot in, in moving forward with it. Jazz, really appreciate you jumping on this podcast, man. It's always great catching up with you. You're truly an expert in Toronto real estate. If people want to connect with you, learn more about pre-construction or investing in Toronto, how could they best do so? Look, man, I'm all over the place. I just appreciate you guys having me on. I know how, like I mentioned, how, how, how big your community has gotten. I'm not hard to find. Um, whatever platform you're watching or listening, you'll figure it out. Um, just search Jazz Takar. Um, I'm sure a bunch of things will come up on that Google site. Awesome. And for those who don't know, our first actual Rise event, it was actually previously GTA Toronto Meetup, but our first ever Rise event was held in conjunction with Jazz yeah. at the office there. Uh, and I'm sure when things, I think things are opening back up, we should, we should definitely chat all, offline about doing another one. It was it was an amazing experience that we had together. And uh, awesome. yeah, I mean, you continuously add a ton of value to the real estate community as well. That means so much, man, coming from you guys. Um, but yes, I totally remember that event. And uh, we definitely should because we're like in complete renovation mode here. We're two months away. Um, and I would love to host you guys in the new digs. Awesome, man. Again, thank you for jumping on all of the links to Jazz's socials, his website, his podcast as well. Jazz also has an amazing podcast. Um, will be down in the show notes below. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.